Welcome to the Radiation Research Society vodcast. I'm Allison Burrell, and I work for the National Science Foundation, and I'm here supporting the Radiation Research Society doing interviews. Uh, today, uh, we're interviewing Stephen McMahon from... Uh, Queen's University in Belfast. Great, and I'd like to congratulate you for, the, for receiving the Jack Fowler Award. Thank you very much. Correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> The Jack Fowler Award is awarded to early career investigators for exemplary work in the radiation field. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I think it's been created in honor of Jack Fowler, who was originally a physicist who became quite involved in radiation biology through his career, and then he was one of the early pioneers in trying to sort of quantify and predict radiation responses. Um, and so as a very big impact in the field. A lot of day-to-day -to -day tools are still derived from things he did. But this award is not only awarded to physicists, you just happen to be one. Yes, uh, so the award is now more general and it's anyone, any work in radiobiology or radiation oncology, but um, it was nice to see a physicist winning it sometimes. Yes, and you happen to have the award with you. Would you yes. like to, to show it off? We do indeed. Get that up there. Wonderful. Nice I, I didn't bring the check with me, but there was one as well. Oh, there's a monetary award as yes. well. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. So let's jump right into the science. What kind of science are you working on that sparked the award committee's eye? So as I mentioned, I'm a physicist um, by training. So my, I did not, had no medical physics training or anything back in my undergrad. Um, but I became involved in projects, sort of more gradually involved in radiation biology through my PhD, where I was looking at um, radiation effects with gold nanoparticles. So these are very small particles of gold that you can introduce into a tumor. And it was hypothesized that because gold is much heavier than normal tissue, it would increase the dose in the tumor and you get um, better cell killing, better tumor control. Um, so there's some early work that showed that it seemed to work in mice, but it wasn't very difficult to quantify. So we were trying to do some physics studies of radiation interactions to predict what would happen. Um, so through my PhD, we were working on this, and it rapidly became clear that if you approach this just from the point of view of physics, it didn't work. None of the predictions lined up. Mm -hmm. um, and so my PhD then sort of turned to looking at the biology and said, well, we're changing this bit of the physics, but there's all this other stuff that happens after that. And can we interpret that um, in some way to get better predictions of what happens when we add these particles? And so we find that by applying these different techniques, we were able to get much better predictions that lined up much more with what we were seeing in the lab and the biologists and the chemists were working with these particles. And that's, I'm not working so much in the gold nanoparticle area anymore. This has continued to be the theme in what I've been doing in my research of trying to incorporate what we know about the underlying biology to do better predictions of radiation responses in a whole range of systems. Um, so more recently, I've been doing, looking at trying to draw together all the various data which there is out there and different mechanisms of radiation response because we know huge amounts about this now. Um, the society every year loves and talks about all these different mechanisms. But a lot of that doesn't make it into our predictive models or our clinical tools. And we're not able to predict, um, for example, how individuals might respond to radiation. So we're trying to, I'm trying to work on an integrated model in that lets us draw all this information together and make predictions that we hope might improve clinical outcomes in the future. So how an indi individual reacts to radiation um, or their response to radiation in a particular situation or um, reacts during treatment? So 
there's a few different areas we want to look at. So, I mean, the goal is effectively to build a mechanistic model where we integrate all our information and then you can interrogate it and say, well, if I do this sequence of treatments, for example, on this particular target, what would happen? Okay. Obviously, that's a big task and that's a ways off, but we're focusing in on some specific areas at the moment. So, two areas we've been looking at in this are predicting different radiation qualities. So, as you might know, most radiation therapy is delivered by X-rays from linear accelerators, but there's places where we use um, protons or carbon ions, which are heavy charged particles. Nice. So, the, this changes the physics of the delivery in terms of where the energy is distributed. But again, that's only part of the story. There's all this knock-on biology that happens afterwards in terms of how the damage is repaired, how the cell responds to that misrepair. Um, and so one of the modeling questions we're looking at is can we, from a sort of first principles approach, generate predictions of how cells are going to respond to this radiation? Um, and we've shown that you can actually do this fairly effectively um, in terms of predicting how cells will respond. And this applies in different types of cells. So you can look at cells and if they have different DNA repair defects, which is quite common in cancer, or different problems with cell cycle regulation, you can predict how these cells, how the, how the differences in these cells look in terms of the responses from this modeling approach based on sort of first principles effects. Again, we're not you know, perfectly exactly predicting it, but we're going to stratify things and identify um, how the differences in relative biological effectiveness, which is how we quantify the difference between the ions and the X-rays looks. So would this prediction be primarily interesting in a laboratory setting, or would it eventually be something where you know, it would be used in a clinical setting where? So it's, I mean, it's a big ongoing question in the laboratory how we can best describe these effects which we see. But the reason we're interested in is that it is a clinical issue. Um, so for carbon ion therapy, which is quite limited, um, there's a few centers in Japan and mm -hmm. Germany which are doing this regularly, they have to incorporate a model of RBE into their responses because if you don't do that, you'll overdose certain parts of the tumor and underdose other parts of the tumor. Um, for protons, most centers don't do any RBE modeling specifically. They apply a constant correction factor, even though we know this varies based on a whole range of parameters. And so we're definitely not getting the best out of these therapies. Um, by using this sort of simple flat RBE model. So if we could improve this model and actually bring this into a clinical scenario, that would be good. And moreover, they use this, even in the carbon ion therapy, they use the same RBE model for everyone. And we know from our laboratory experiments, different tissues and different tumors don't have the same RBE relationship. And we know, as I said, different DNA repair defects will change this, different uh, aspects of tumor metabolism can affect this. And a project we're trying to get some funding on to do a more detailed study in is saying, can we use this model to predict clinical RBEs in patients so we can, at the time of treatment, get a, for example, a gene sequence or a gene expression profile from a patient and say, this looks like you have these de defects, genetic mutations in your cell, which might impact on your RBE in this way. So we might say, oh, this person looks like they'll respond very well or relatively poorly to proton therapy because these are scarce resources. You want to allocate them to the patients who are going to see the most benefit. And so this kind of modeling can be done quickly? So the there's a quite a amount of background and development modeling we have to do in some various testing, but the actual prediction of response in a given system is very quick. I mean, very quick. From, the, from the user point of view, basically right. instantaneous. So if you, Once you've established that. Yeah, so the big challenge is you have to get program. lots and lots of data to characterize the model and validate the model. So we've built, we're building up a database, basically trying to draw in, as I say, all this preclinical data and cell survival, DNA repair, chromosome aberration information, all this different data. 
So we have a huge database of many thousands of data points, which we then use to refine the model iteratively and test different predictions. And that part is very slow and very time consuming, but once you know what the prediction is, it's relatively quick. That's great. Yeah. Um in a previous podcast that we did from Japan, we talked with someone in the society about carbon and ion therapies. Um, so if anyone wants to go back and, and watch that one, but perhaps we could um, have another podcast in the future um, talking about that. I'm just curious from, from that podcast, it was talked about, like you said, that the carbon is primarily available in what, Germany and, and Japan. Yeah. Um, is, is, the availability of that or proton therapies, are they more available in the past couple of years than they were? The, the uptake of carbon has been very slow. I think in part because you need very big facilities and the patient throughput is very low. Mm -hmm. And there is I know some disagreements about exactly how much the benefit is compared to putting the same amount of money into just improving access to conventional therapy or building proton therapy centers. Um, but proton therapy has very much went through an explosion probably over the last 15 years or so. Um, very much in the US, there's been a huge number of new centers. And then in the UK, we've finally gotten up to speed because it was a bit of an issue for several years, disputes over funding and where it would go. But we finally have our two new National Health Service proton centers opening. So the first is hopefully be treating patients within a couple of months and then the next in 2019. So this is becoming a quite a pressing issue for allocation in the UK because see, with the Nationalised Health Service, there's, you know, they're very much targeting the cancers of need, um, which is currently done on a cancer by cancer basis. So for example, paediatric cancers and certain things with very strict dose constraints. Yeah. But if there's also subdivisions within these, this can be an interesting question. I don't know the terminology, but is, are they both on the, like, the main they're both in Great Britain, Britain yeah. yeah. So one in London and one up in um, Manchester. Okay, so there isn't one in Ireland yet? No, not yet. Um, there's a number of private companies who are also building proton centres around the UK. So the one opened in Wales very recently. Um, and there's a, it's very hard to tell. There's always reports of new ones being built, but it'll be interesting how many actually finish and open, but potentially maybe six others. Um, and I know there's interest there in building some in Ireland, but. Um, that did none have broken ground yet. Yeah. Just thinking logistically, patients having to travel around yeah. a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is a big challenge, and yeah. that's one of the reasons why they finally made the push to build these centers, because they're sending patients off to France or even to America to get proton therapy, which obviously is a big upheaval if you have a sick relative right. and you're bringing them and family members out. So at least Manchester or London are relatively accessible to most of the population. So this predictive modeling that you're doing, could that potentially be used to determine who's you know, best to respond to something like this. Yeah. And so, I mean, we expect that certain defects are going to mean that some people will see a much, much higher biological effectiveness from the proton therapy in their tumor, irrespective of the physical dosimetric benefits, which is why we normally use protons, just because they let you conform the dose more tightly in a mm -hmm. physical distribution. There's also this biological component, and it's that interplay again, which we're trying to understand. And so that would potentially highlight patients either who should be prioritized or who might even have cancers that wouldn't normally be treated with protons, where we might actually want to consider um, delivering there. And then also there's probably some tumors with particular sets of defects where we know that you don't see a relative biological effectiveness with protons, or even some, there's some mixed reports that some, some tumors are less effective. Um, 
although that's relatively rare. Um, but you, if these patients do exist, you might not want, want to deprioritize them or look at other approaches to help make sure they get the best outcome from their treatment. Would this be considered personalized medicine? Is that the, the correct term? Yes, that is the big buzzword. Yes, uh, when you're talking about this and writing ground proposals, personalized precision medicine. Is precision, very personalized, yeah. and it, it keeps changing yeah. the title. But this is the idea. We're trying the to get these the core aspects of the Rather than treating a lung cancer, you treat a particular patient's lung cancer with all the particular details of the genetic mutations and alterations they have, and trying to bridge that gap a bit better. Yeah, and, and with all this computer technology being able to to handle the the numbers. Yeah. I mean, this is a big. I mean, just there was a bit of a a disconnect. I think happened in a lot of research communities some years ago in that. Originally, radiation biology was a very integrated discipline. As I say, there were physicists, clinicians, um, the fundamental biologists working very closely together. But as the fields became a bit more sophisticated, I think, in sort of the past few decades, there was a bit of a separation and there was a lot of biologists doing biology and a lot of physicists doing physics, but not that um, link between. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so, it was maybe fell back a bit, but as we've Develop computational power, and particularly with the new interest in bioinformatics and genomics, where you need this mathematical, physical insight. These groups have come back together a bit more and promoted by things like the Society have tried to improve these links and keep people in contact. And that's helped drive a lot more integration of all this wonderful preclinical and clinical biological data we have into more predictive models. Um, so, with this Jack Fallow Award, I think it, it, it's awarded based on what you've done, but it's also awarded based on the potential your research has in the future. So where is your research headed? Like, what are you working on now? And I mean, as I said earlier, the two big things we're trying to do with the model, I was talking about the RBE concept, oh, but yeah. also more generally, we want to try and build better personalized models of radiation response, because even for x-rays, people respond differently. Um, and if you go through the past issues of radiation research or any of the radiation biology journals, you find we know a lot of what drives this, and we can measure this, and we can look at the same things in patients now with um, sequencing techniques. And there's a big, big potential to improve therapeutic outcomes here, um, because we treat, as I say, a lung tumor, um, but we know that an individual's tumor may have sensitivity which differs by 20, 30% based on, if you look at the same tumors in vitro, we can measure the sensitivity. So some patients are getting far too much dose and maybe seeing additional toxicity. Some patients are getting too little dose and they're seeing failures. And if we can build in, integrate these models and start bringing in factors that we can stratify patients and predict sensitivity in a mechanistic informed way, we can then try and personalize medicine in this way and personalize dose delivery and get better outcomes for these patients. Or that's, a, that's often quite a big step, getting that personalization step, but even just identifying those patients who might be at risk one way or another, we can look at other additional treatments or mitigation options we can bring towards these patients to help give them the best outcome from their therapy. That's great, and I look forward to hearing more about your research in the future. Um, taking a step back, so you have your own lab at your university. Um, how long have you so my current position in Queen's University is what they call a Queen's University Research Fellowship. So it's a scheme for um, research-oriented um, lecturers to come in. So I took up that position just a year ago. Um, and so I'm in the process of getting some initial work done, some PhD students started, and trying to get some funding for bigger projects and that sort of thing. Um, and so the university has set up a sort of protected research time to try and promote um, new 
research active staff, which is quite nice. Um, that post I got following on from a Marie Curie International Fellowship I had, um, which was a great opportunity I had where um, I was applying for an independent grant, sort of uh, independent postdoc, effectively. Um, and so that was funded by the EU and gave me the chance to come from the lab in Belfast where I was working and come to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston for two years. So I was able to work there for um, two years in the lab of Harold Paganetti, who's obviously an expert in proton radiobiology. And the group there does a lot of work on, again, the more physical side of um, radiation modeling. So they have a lot of Monte Carlo simulation yes. experience in calculating track structure, dose, linear energy transfer. Um, and they're starting to look at then bringing these models down to predict things like um, damage on the subcellular level, so the impact these effects have on individual strands of DNA and chromosomes and that sort of thing. And so then my modeling fit in quite nicely there, and that the work I've been doing has been sort of starting from just after that stage of saying, well, we've done the physical bit, and we have this distribution of damage in the cell, so where do we go from there? And that's been a good experience. Got to work in a lab, with, obviously, with a close link with the proton center there and have a bit more independence and sort of I designed the project proposal myself so that helped lead into the more permanent position in Queens. And, and having that experience, of, I mean it's kind of a networking thing as mm. well so you could potentially have a collaborator in the future. Oh yeah, no I mean it's been great. I mean we've, we're, I am, they are currently collaborators on the grant proposal I have in and I'm a collaborator on one, um, Jan Schumann, one That's of my great. colleagues in there has in so it's very good to build those links up and there's good complementary skills between different groups and, and things like the Radiation Research Society helps foster that as well because you get the opportunity to meet and broaden that collaborative network as well. Right, so when you first joined the Radiation Research Society, was it as a scholar in training? Yeah, so that would have been six years ago now actually, yeah. well that's quite a while, um, <laughs> now that I counted up. Yeah, so um, I was working in the lab of Kevin Price at the time, our current president, mm -hmm. uh, well, actually just past president, he finished about 20 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> And so he has obviously been an important member of the society for a long time, was very um, keen to get new members in, so he encouraged me to go present my work and get to meet some of the wider field, um, get to, you know, some of the, see a bit more of the landscape in North America, because I've mostly been at sort of UK and European meetings prior to that. So I was in SIT then, um, and so I had some good opportunities there. I got to do some invited talks as part of the SIT um, session on the day before the meeting earlier mm -hmm. years, which was good to raise my profile and get a bit more um, links. In yeah, there. it's really great to have that, that day just for SATs, yeah. I think, before the meeting starts. I think it helps also because you know, they're all, all the SATs together and it gives you sort of like slightly more informal opportunity to get to know other people at a similar level without all the various senior people here, people, the people might be trying to talk to you if they're all there as well. Agreed. Um, and so about three, well, three years ago, we started at the Radiation Research Society, the um, early career investigators, mm. so that you don't just go from being an SIT to being a full full member, yeah. um, but you have a community of other early career investigators that you can meet with. Yeah. And um, how do you feel that that, um, now that you're an ECI, mm. how has that been supportive? Has, has yeah, no, it's been really good um, because Let's say there's the cohort of the SITs who also know each other from the various events that are on there come through and now several of the ones I knew from the SIT days are now members of the ECI community. We still meet at the mm -hmm. various social. It's good to just you know, see people who are at the same stage and have that community where you can you know, discuss the challenges because obviously as you move from being an SIT to an ECI you get all these other burdens as well around teaching and administration stuff. Administrative and it's good to, stuff. 
particularly. Just, yeah, it's just good to be able to discuss that, talk to other people about how they're dealing with it, and yeah, good to know that you know, other people have the same problems and the same experiences. I'm wondering if you think having, um, you know, in um, succession or, or at the same time as the SIT workshop, if there was a, an ECI workshop the day before the start of the meeting, if that would be something that, that you would want to participate in. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's certainly a lot of interest among uh, the ECI community in trying to get a bit more structure into the ECI and get a bit more input in the meeting in some way, whether there's um, reserve spots for ECIs in some of the um, sessions or mm -hmm. uh, like an ECI badge session or plenary or similar. Um, I think it's good to do that. I mean, one aspect of radiation research is they generally have very good quality talks. I mean, the meeting's always been very curated and always had a very good um, um, standard of presentation. And I, thought, I think there's certainly a lot of good ECIs, so I don't think there'd be any problem in keeping a high standard with mm -hmm. some of us, so I think it would be nice. But I think even just having that badge and just keeping the community together a bit is already a good thing. You know. Yeah, because I think um at the moment, the only SIT talk that is given is the Marie Curie Award, correct? The, so the Marie Curie Award is reserved for SITs. The, David Kirsch has introduced a new system this year, um, because he was heading the program committee, where there were proffered abstracts given talks as well as invited. Um, so it's, I think, two, two to one or something in the current setup. So there are opportunities for SITs to do more presentations. Oh, that's good. Um, there have been a few in the past as well um, where an SAT was invited for various reasons or um, there was a particularly good abstract, but I think having some, a bit more reserved time is good because it gets a bit more exposure. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about like in, as far as your, your journey from graduate student to professor? I mean, are you considered a professor? Uh, not the UK has a different no, terminology, no. so... Um, only UK professor titles reserved for full professors. Mm. My post would be equivalent to um, assistant professor here, oh, probably not not quite adjunct, but okay. sort of slightly along from adjunct. Yeah. Um, the st the step before. Uh, so yeah. So mm -hmm. well, there's technically three administrative ranks, but they're a bit blurred really in terms of like the different grades. But yeah. Um, but no, just a regular doctor for the moment. Okay, <laughs> Doctor McMahon. Yeah. Um, so you've done most of your training in the UK. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on on the whole training process? Radi radiation oncology and radiation biology are a slightly tricky one because we're almost a niche in a niche. Um, Although you know, there's several hundred people in the society spread out across all the disciplines. Um, but did you know you were going into radiation biology? No. Because no. most graduate students don't no. get I've, to choose the, the route that they go. They kind of fall into it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so there's no, there's very little formal training. Like I've not really done any formal training at any stage. I've just sort of you know, been involved in projects and tried to pick up skills as I go. Um, which I think is true of a lot of people in these fields, um, just because we're a bit below that critical mass where we're not like you know, the genomics or the bioinformatics people. There's huge amounts of interest and there's dedicated master's courses and training courses for that. Um, so there's a lot more sort of ad hoc um, training, sort of, you know, almost the apprenticeship style where you're in the lab and you pick it up from the people there. Um, which, I mean, worked quite well, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, but we, it would be potentially nice to try and build more scope for training in this in a more formalized way, I think. Um, 
So for example, in the UK, and I assume probably in America, there are like the, for radiation oncologists, the clinicians, mm -hmm. there are actually dedicated explicit courses and that sort of thing might be quite useful if we can get a bit more of that to help give people a complete picture of radiation responses. Right. As one thing I find, I I'm, I'm, think I'm on okay with it now, but certainly when I started out, I always felt like you have a very almost patchy overview of the field because it's quite difficult to get a feeling for everything that's going on if you don't have a you know, formal structured course to explain. Exactly. But yeah, I think I've gotten to have it now, but that's such a thing I think might be useful in the future, to more resources for just getting a good overview of what's going on. I mean, on. definitely the, the society has done that. Mm. For me, personally, I think I didn't know much about all the different aspects and all the different research opportunities with, with radiation. And so coming here really was was the yeah, learning no, I mean, experience. Yeah, things like this are great. And like radiation research study where they're very welcoming for new people and there's a lot of yes. um, like topical review talks in the morning, give good overviews for bits and that is a nice resource, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah, and no speaking problem. It's with my us. pleasure. Yes, and uh, we hope to see you again with us um, at the Radiation Research Society podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.